All right, we'll move into 1 Timothy. We're going to get down to verse 5 uh, this morning. Um, plan to get down to verse 11, but um, didn't get that far. So verses 1 through 5, Loving with Sound Doctrine is the title of the study. The next three books we're going to be going through, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are known as the pastoral epistles. He wrote to uh, young Timothy, who was uh, pastoring the church at Ephesus, and then also Titus, who was there in Crete. And he gave him instructions about how the church should function, how he should uh, address some of the issues that, they, that were going on, and, and to care for themselves. Um, who wrote this letter? Paul did. It's the very first word of this epistle, and yet some question whether this was actually written by him. But not for 1,800 years of church history. But in the 19th century, um, somebody decided they uh, knew better than 1,800 years and what the Bible says and began to question it. But outside of the Word of God stating it, which is all we need, there is other evidence by church fathers such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, um, Polycarp, early church fathers um, making reference to this letter and being found in even some of the earliest um, uh, can, um, canons of Scripture. So there's all kinds of other evidence that points this out. Written, uh, we can't nail it down for certain, but uh, it would seem 63 to 66 AD would be the time in which these pastoral epistles were written. So a brief summary of Paul's life. His first missionary journey happened from about 48 to 56 AD. Um, and then at 56 to 60, Paul was arrested and kind of started going through those series of trials Eventually worked his way all the way to Rome where he was under house arrest for the next two years, 61 to 62 A.D. And so after being released, um, somewhere around 63 to 66 is when we believe this letter and Titus was written. And then at the end of his life in 67 A.D., 2 Timothy was written. So that kind of is a, a real super brief overview of, of his ministry but that's where we are. So it's towards the end of his life, towards the end of his ministry. And Timothy is a recipient. And again, I already kind of talked about why he was writing. Let's go ahead and read a couple of these verses. In verses 1 and 2, we get the greeting from Paul. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. So a very typical greeting. Um, what's different about, I mean, if you were to read a lot of the other greetings that were of letters of this time, it would sound very familiar, except he is infusing it with the doctrine and the truth of Jesus Christ. And so it is, in that sense, altogether different. But it sounds like the way a lot of the letters would have been written back in that day. And, and what we find here, first of all, is that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God. By the commandment of God and Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ. We go back to his Damascus Road experience. At that time, he was, when, and was known by the name Saul. And Saul was on his way up to Damascus to arrest Christians. He hated Christians. He believed that Jesus of Nazareth was an antichrist. And he needed to do everything he could to stamp out this, this heretic and the followers of this heresy. On his way up there, Jesus meets him on the road and says, Why are you persecuting me? Knocks him off of his horse. He's blinded with a great light. 
and um, goes and is in Damascus, blinded now, and wondering what had just happened. He knows that it was Jesus, he asks, and he's informed. And then a Christian up there in Damascus, probably one of the guys he was going to arrest, named Ananias, was told, hey, there's this guy that needs you. His name is Saul. Why don't you go talk to him? <laughs> Lord, Saul, this guy's come here to arrest us. I know, don't worry about it. He's my chosen servant. Go and tell him what I have for him, that he must testify to his countrymen and to kings, but that he also must what? Suffer many things. And this is when the commandment of God that he refers to came to him. He wasn't looking for it. It came out of nowhere as he would have uh, been living his life in direct rebellion against Jesus, and he became a follower of Jesus Christ on that day. But he says, by the commandment of God, he's an apostle. He's doing what the Lord has called him to do with his life, which was in direct opposition to where he was headed. But, you know, Jesus is a king, and he has a kingdom. And those that are followers of his are under those commands that he issues. Not only the commandments of Scripture, but those individual guidance and direction commands that he gives to our life, that I want you to do this, I want you to do that. And we need to respond to them. You know, we live in a time, though, when um, moral and philosophical autonomy is esteemed at its, like, its highest. But I'll say this, that's pseudo-autonomy, because all of them are doing it together, marching to the same orders of the God of this age. They're not nearly as autonomous as they think. They're all marching, you know, lockstep and barrel with the God of this age. But what about us? How do we feel as followers of Jesus Christ? How do we feel about the commandments of God? I mean, as we read here in verse 1, you don't hear Paul like chafing underneath the, uh, underneath the commandment of God. He's welcoming it. I mean, it's, 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 it's language that's... Um, it's high, it's, it's praising, it's worshiping that he would have this. This is my hope. The one who gives me the commandments, he's given me hope. So he's not resisting it. Do you feel that the commands of God are oppressive? Many do. Many would look at the commandments of God and say, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. Others would look and maybe they would say, well, I wouldn't use the word oppressive, but I feel like it's overstepping and it's infringing upon my personal freedoms and what I want to do and how I want to live my life. But what we should be doing is rejoicing that God would take the time to give me any instruction about how to live life at all. And, it, and when we come through the Word of God and we encounter these commandments, that we would quickly embrace them and receive them and count them as great favor that God would tell us how to live our lives. Or that He would come to you and give you guidance and direction. This is amazing that we would have this kind of relationship with God. He is not the, the God that Thomas Jefferson said was out there, that he's this deist who's believe that God was out there on somewhere in planet Earth. He got this world in motion and left and walked away. No, he's involved. He's commanding and instructing our lives. And Paul is talking about this. And we should embrace that. You know, when we, as evangelicals, um, we are quick to say we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. That means we believe that God has given us. He's breathed this word to us. We also believe that it's inerrant. Because it's inspired, we believe that because it's come from God, it's without error. That we have, um, a, you know, what the Lord has said is, is true. We also believe 
that it is sufficient, which means whatever we need to know for how to be saved or how to live life or go through conflict with each other, the Word of God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. It's sufficient. And we really don't have much dispute around that. But then this next aspect is where we have a little trouble, and that is that the New Testament, the Scriptures are authoritative. They're inspired. They're inerrant. They're sufficient. Usually not too much dispute. But now when we get to this idea that they're authoritative, what does that mean? It has the right, the Scriptures, and the Lord Himself has the right to tell you how to live life. And that's where we begin to run into some trouble. We begin to evaluate our own ideas and our own opinions. So yeah, I know that's the Word of God, but I just think and I just feel, or I want to live this way, or why can't I? And we begin to chafe under it. And so unlike Paul, who's writing and saying that he was an apostle by the commandment of God, he's glad to be doing what the Lord had called him to do, we begin to um, have frustration with that. And I hope that you don't, but let's be real. As we walk through this life, at some point in time as Christians, there's going to be some commandment somewhere, sometime, that's just like, oh, why? Why do I have to forgive? Or why do I have to, you know, engage in that? Why do I have to give away? Or why do I have to deny? And we will work through this. But we need to grow and, and come to the place where we just fully appreciate the commandments of God. John said in his first epistle that the commandments of God are not, does anybody know what it says? They are not what? burdensome. And we say things like this, it's so hard to obey the Lord. Okay, I don't doubt that that is our experience, but how does that then align with John who says that the commandments of God are not burdensome? Well, I think we got to go back maybe a step further to where Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. It comes to the matter of heart. If I find the commandments of God burdensome, or they're oppressive, or they're infringing, or they're overstepping on what I want to do. It has to do with my heart relationship with the Lord. And that is something we got to deal with there, and not just deal with the commandments. we got to deal with our heart with the, with the Lord. But for Paul, he was happy to be an apostle by royal command. What is the royal command that's been given to you? The, uh, the uh, psalmist, excuse me, Psalm 119 uh, all about the Word of God. And he said something like this, It is good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That's a love for the Word of God, isn't it? Lord, I so love you and obeying you that this trial and this difficulty that's come into my life, which has given me insight about obedience in a way maybe I never have thought of before or have ever been confronted before, but now this trial and this affliction in my life, it's now causing me to have to walk out obedience in a way I never thought I would before. Lord, I thank you for that. It's good that I've been afflicted, that I might more fully understand the scope and the depth of your commandments, and now I can walk them out. That is the heart the Lord wants us to have towards His Word. Not feeling like, oh man, I just want to go do my own thing. No. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We used to do our own thing. Now we do God's thing. Now we're following Him and we are servants of Him. And so I pray that you will just take an honest evaluation. We all know the Sunday school answer is, oh yeah, I love to obey Jesus. But what's really going on in your heart? What's really happening there right now? Do you want to obey the commands of the Lord? 
Or do you find it's like, well, I don't want that one. I don't want to have to deal with that. I'm good with everything but that. Then ask the Lord to change your heart. It's a heart issue. It's not a, it's, this is not a morality issue. This is a heart issue. And when your heart is affected, then those moral decisions that you make will be um, flowing out of that. So he's an apostle by royal command. And, verse, and at the end of verse 1, he says uh, that uh, of our God and our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. We have hope this morning. We have hope that Jesus is going to come back. And if he doesn't come back and we go to him, that before that happens, we have the hope of being with him and experiencing the eternal plans that God has for our life. You can't find that anywhere but in the Lord. You can have hope in things, but it's a hope-so kind of a hope. But this hope is a certainty of belief that that which I'm trusting in is actually going to happen, and it will be realized. You will be in the presence of the Lord. You will live forever you will be reunited with your loved ones who have gone before you. You will um, not have to deal with sickness or disease. You won't have to struggle against your flesh anymore. All of these things are there. We're going to see the Lord face to face. This is our hope. And that's what we should allow to motivate us in our decisions is that. Well, as we move into verse 2, we find the recipient named. It says, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So Timothy was a, a faithful follower of the Lord, and Paul calls him a true son in the faith, which means he, one of two things. It either means he led him to the Lord, or that Timothy um, was discipled by Paul, and we know that was the case. Um, so whether he led him to the Lord or not, we don't know for certain. Um, because his mother and grandmother were godly Jewish ladies that had taught him the scriptures. Um, he also was ordained by Paul. Paul and other elders had laid hands on him and commissioned him into ministry. Paul was writing to Timothy who, to oversee this church here in Ephesus, and we'll see that city named in just a moment. And Timothy was one of Paul's most faithful companions. He actually said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, that he had no one else like-minded. For Paul, there was no one like Timothy in ministry. He's, this is why I'm sure he's calling him the son in the faith. It's just like, you just do it the way I do it. The way I, I want to, I think ministry should be conducted, the way the word of God should be taught, the way the, the body of Christ should be loved, the way the lost should be evangelized. You do it like my son. And he was one of his most faithful. And Timothy was like Mr. Utility. You know, a baseball team, um, they often will have a few players on that team that can step in any position. And they're, they, you know, they're athletic, they're able to have a lot of different skill sets, and they can plug them in, infield, outfield, you know, different, different positions. But not every athlete on the baseball team wants to do that. You know, you ever seen pitchers run to first base? Yeah, they, they don't really care about that part. So, you know, but, but there's some, there's some that are just like, they'll do whatever. You want me to, you know, run the bases? You want me to, you know, go bunt? You want me to, you, whatever it is, I'll go do it. That was Timothy. That was his heart. I will do whatever you want me to do. And um, he was a faithful 
follower. Now, the, the, what we're going to find here in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy was that he was going to have to confront false teachers. He's going to be charged to preach sound doctrine. Um, he was going to have to set up a leadership and a criteria for establishing them was going to be given to him. And then he was exhorted to take care of his own spiritual walk. See, these are some of the topics that will be covered as we make our way through 1 Timothy. We move into verses 3 and 4 and we see that we, he's exhorted to teach sound doctrine and deal with false teachers. Now this is going to come up several times in this letter. We read in verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, that, would be, that region is where Philippi would have been, remain in Ephesus, so that's where he was, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So Paul's leaving, um, going to do travels. Timothy is there in Ephesus, and he says, stay there. Take care of this church. And he urges him, at the second half of verse 3, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. The word charge here, it's a military term, which means to give strict orders to. This is not a, hey, let's just kind of for consideration, think about this, ponder it, and see what you feel about this, this teaching. That's not what he's asking him to do. He's saying, I charge them that they can say nothing else other than what has been taught. Don't Allow it. You know, this, again, troublesome. It's like, well, that's not very open-minded. And you're absolutely right, it's not open-minded. Because God's mind has spoken. And when God speaks, that's all we need. Now it's up to us to walk that out in faith. And what Scripture says of, its, of the Lord is, let God be true and every man a liar. What's that? What does that mean? That means even if... The entire world would line up against God and say, we don't agree with you. They're all liars. And God is still true. So God wants us to embrace his word and wants us to teach that word and say no other thing. But he's not looking for affirmation in this. He's fully convinced of what he has declared to us and what has been taught to us. Is it narrow? Yeah, it's really narrow. But isn't that the way truth works? Truth is narrow. Why don't be open-minded? Not in all things you don't. No, you don't in all. You don't want to be open-minded about where your paycheck goes, whether it goes into this bank account or that bank account. You're pretty narrow-minded about the numbers on your bank accounts. Hey, that didn't go in my account. Why are you so narrow-minded? Well, what do you mean narrow-minded? I mean, I, that's my paycheck. Well, the Lord's pretty narrow-minded about His truth. And we should be as well. And that's why we see that charge them, give them strict orders, don't teach that again. Now, I don't know the tone, but that's kind of the feel of it. Don't, you're not allowed to teach that anymore. That's got to stop. He's charged here to stand for the purity of the doctrine that he had heard, that they had received, and that had been delivered to them through the Scriptures. Hold on and don't veer away. We don't know exactly what the other false teachers were saying. We'll get a general description in just a moment. But whatever it was, he said, don't let them do it. Tell them to stop. Now, I, I want us to understand this, that within Scripture, there's those primary doctrines, or that you can call them the cardinal doctrines, or the essentials of the faith. Or to put it another way, the teachings that make Christianity what it is. 
And if you take any of them away, you no longer have it. Those doctrines, we, there's no latitude for negotiation. There are other issues. We call them secondary issues um, or non-essential issues for salvation and, and sound doctrine. Maybe we talk about eschatology, you know, doctrine of last things. Is it post, pre, mid, uh, trib, millennial? Uh, we could talk about, you know, the gifts or all the gifts for today or not. We can have that. And there's these other doctrines. And then it can come to other matters of, um, you know, well, are we saying that Timothy is a, uh, was led to the Lord uh, by Paul or that he was discipled? And there will be many places in Scripture where we may have a slightly different take on it, but it doesn't change and affect any doctrine. Then there's those secondary doctrines that we may have different opinions on, but it doesn't change us from being Christians to something else. But when we get to the primary doctrines of salvation and faith, there is no room for negotiation. Well, aren't Christians supposed to walk in unity? Yes, but not at the, 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 this, for the sake of uh, losing truth. That we have to stand and say, I'm sorry, we'll have to divide over this one. And so the challenges or the charges don't allow people to teach anything else. I think we should be thinking about, you know, these things that would change the Christian faith. I think next week I'm actually going to, at the beginning of this, I'm going to go through all those essential doctrines. Just as a, as a quick overview and go, these are the ones that can't be. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that next week. Um, but you just can know in your mind there's these different categories of uh, difference of opinion. And that's one that can't. We can't change. You know, um, a while ago, many years ago, a book came out called Velvet Elvis, and Rob Bell was playing around with the idea of whether or not it really mattered if Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, he never said he wasn't. He says, but if he wasn't, would it really upset your, your faith in him? And the answer is, yeah, it, it would totally. Because number one, the Word of God says that he is. Number two, if he's not born of a virgin, then he is not the Son of God. And if he's not the Son of God, then he is not sinless. And if he's not sinless... He's got his own problems to deal with, and he can't take mine. So I have no salvation. So yeah, this is it. And, and that's, a, that's something we've got to be careful of when people begin to tinker with the, the cardinal truths of the faith. So would it really matter? Yes, it would matter. Why are you feeling even comfortable saying that? You know, you, you mess, I mess up my words. You listen to me. You know, I mess up my words sometimes. I just told somebody, you know, I meant to say pro-life, and I said pro-choice. And they said, oh, you just messed up your words. I'm like, yeah, I do that a lot. But that's an accident. But if I set out to teach and I left you with the impression that I don't believe in the virgin birth or I don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ or I don't believe in his atoning salvation for my sins and, and the world's, and you thought that, I, I guarantee you, if I went back and, and I listened and I had misspoke, I would be writing a letter before the end of the day is and emailing out to all of you and doing everything I could to make it clear I misspoke. But when people are willing to start tampering with the foundation blocks of our faith, and they don't feel compelled to correct it, don't tell me, oh, I, I wasn't serious, because nobody responds that way. You don't do that. And none of us like to be misunderstood, especially if we're talking about making something that is uh, you know, changing and altering something as important as our Christian faith. So the charge is don't let them teach. So practically speaking, that means um, 
And we've had to deal with this so rarely in the life of our church, which I'm thankful for. But if somebody came teaching something, and we would go to them, and we'd talk to them and say, hey, you can't teach this. This isn't right. This is what the Word of God says. And we would sit through many conversations, and if they're like, no, I just don't agree. I don't believe that Jesus was you know, born of a virgin. I'd say, all right, well, you know, you can't teach in the children's ministry anymore. You can't, you're not allowed to teach that to the youth. You're not allowed to teach that in the home fellowship or men or women's group. You can't do that. If you're going to continue to teach that and hold that, that can't be. Because doctrine, bad doctrine, is a really, really dangerous thing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. And you'll see the danger of it. You know, it's always been the goal of Satan to take the Word of God and twist it. <laughs> Satan is always working. From the Genesis, he's trying to undermine it. And the, I mean, he is so convinced in his ability to twist Scripture and get people to mess it up, he was even willing to try that on Jesus. Amen. It's kind of like, well, he, he became a man. Maybe I've got a shot now. And he was willing. I mean, he's so confident in his ability to twist Scripture that he even tried it on the Son of God. Well, Paul understood that this tactic was still going on. He says, and he's writing to the Ephesian elders, by the way, when he was leaving them. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will arise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. There's their motivation. Therefore, watch and remember for three years I did not cease to warn. Paul was with them for three years, teaching them. When he left them here in Acts 20, he says, when I'm gone, people are going to come from outside, and there will be people that will come from within. Now Timothy is there, and he's having to deal with these that he had warned would be coming. And it's still going on to this day. Yeah, sometimes we have to tell people, you're wrong. That is not right. That is not what the Bible teaches. And people will question us on our motivation. Well, if you're really a Christian and you're walking in unity and love, you wouldn't tell somebody that they couldn't share that. You'd be open-minded. No, not at all. You know, what we often hear, and it's like said every day against Christians, I thought you Christians aren't supposed to judge. You know, when people say that, I say, no, we are supposed to judge. I just, I don't try, you know, sugarcoat. No, I'm supposed to judge. The Bible tells me to judge. It says that I'll know them by, the, by, by fruits, whether it's good fruit or bad fruit. I look, I'm supposed to make a judgment. I'm supposed to be discerning. I'm supposed to test everything that somebody says. I'm supposed to cling to what is good, and I'm to abhor what is, what is not from the Lord. We are to be people who judge. We're to be judging uh, whether somebody is in the faith or out of the faith. We are to be judging whether this is biblical or not biblical, whether that is good fruit or bad fruit, whether a true prophet or a false prophet. Here's what we're not supposed to judge in, is what was a person's motivation and desire or what was their action when I don't know the whole story. That we're not supposed to judge. That is unrighteous judgment. I'll give you an example from my own life. If you went back 30-something years ago in my life and looked at me in my first day um, on staff at Calvary Chapel, uh, Vista, California. Um, it was the first week I was there. I was 23 years old, and um, the assistant pastor comes and says, Hey, Troy, we need you to do something. I'm like, Yep, yeah, I'm your man. I'm ready. 
And um, I was so excited to be there. And they were like, all right, uh, we just got a call from some people out of town. And they're afraid that their, uh, their sister-in-law has killed herself, committed suicide. We need you to go over to the house and check and see if she's alive. Like, I don't want to do that. I, I don't have that gifting. I don't, I didn't have that class. As a matter of fact, I've had no classes. And I was like, okay, can somebody come with me? No, just go and do it by yourself. You'll be fine. Oh, yeah, okay. So I get in the car. I'm like, I can't believe I got to go. What if she's dead? What am I? I mean, the cops going to think I did it? I mean, I have all of these thoughts going through my mind. And I'm, uh, I'm new in town. I couldn't find the place. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. I, I tried and I couldn't find the place. And I'm about almost back to the church, and I'm like, I can't do that. i got to go find it. So I went back out, and um, I finally found the apartment complex. And I went up to the door, and I'm just like, oh, this is what's going to happen. I knock on the door, and I don't know whether I should hope that somebody answers the door or doesn't answer the door. You know what I mean? So I answer, and then, you know, I don't hear anything. And all of a sudden, the door just kind of slowly opens, and it's dark inside, and this person looks at me and goes, hello? And I said, I said her name. I said, are you so-and-so? She goes, yeah. I said, your family's really concerned about you. She goes, ah. Oh. She just turned and walked back into the apartment. There wasn't anything in the apartment. There was no furniture. There was just, a, just an empty apartment. And she went and just sat down. She goes, can you come in and talk to me? And I'm thinking, great. My first week, I'm going to get fired. And I'm walking into... A, um, a, you know, the house of, you know, a woman whose husband just left. And, you know, I went in and I sat down. I still remember so close. I sat down. There was fleas jumping all over me and just being there. And she was just in tears and broken. And so um, I was able to minister and pray. And I got the ladies of the church to go over. And we got furniture. And it all worked out. But if you would have saw me walking out of that apartment, what would have you thought? Oh, there's a new youth pastor walking out of that lady's house whose husband just left. What's he doing? I bet they've got something going on. And that would have been an unrighteous judgment because you don't know the whole story. It's kind of like you could have drawn some conclusions about Jesus hanging out with the woman at the well, right? What's he doing? The disciples seem to have a little bit of an issue with that. So, listen, I'm not saying that's a good model to follow, but sometimes life just doesn't fit the model and you're confronted with things, you know. You could see somebody, you, you, you break down on the highway, and you pick up somebody, and they get out of the car, and, you know, people can draw conclusions, right? But they'd be unrighteous. But to know whether or not a person believes that Jesus is the Son of God or is not, that's not hard. To know whether or not they believe He is the way, the truth, and the life, I am to make judgments about that. Otherwise, how could I or you or anybody possibly fulfill the commandment that says you can't teach that anymore i have to make a judgment i have to make an evaluation from the word of god about what other people are saying so i can say that is good or that is not good so yeah when people say you know what well, thought you christians aren't supposed to judge understand it's not that simple and um you know there is a place to make righteous judgment and it's commended all over scripture well, what were some of the, the things that were being taught and being shared that were causing so much trouble there in the church at Ephesus? Um, he says in verse 4, he says, Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, 
which is in faith. So stop the false teaching. Only allow the pure doctrine of the Word of God to go forth. And get them to stop with all these fables, with all this fiction, with all these speculative thoughts and ideas that have no um, you know, grounding in the Word of God. And listen, they abounded. And they still abound. Things that maybe are touching the Word of God in some way, but you don't find it in Scripture. And they're just fables. There's fiction. There's all kinds of um, uh, writings from the 2nd and 3rd century that claim to be Scripture that are not Scripture. And they just say things that are, that are you know, wrong. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, it's not maybe doctrinally wrong, but it's just information that's not found in Scripture. Um, one of them, uh, there's a, a, a collection called the Infancy Gospels, and it talks about just different, a collection of stories about Jesus. And one of them you know, talks about how, it says, In the month of Adder, Jesus gathered together the boys and ranked them as though he had been, king, been a king. For they spread their garments on the ground for him to sit on, and having made a crown of flowers, put it on his head and stood on his right hand and left as the guards of a king. And if anyone happened to pass by, they took him by force and said, Come hither and worship the king, that you may have a prosperous journey. Fake news. It's not in the Bible. It's just made up. And, and these are the kinds of fables and much worse than that, that were going on. I don't know that this was one of them. It wasn't because it came later. But this is the kind of stuff that was going on. And this is where all the attention was going. It wasn't on the Word of God. It was on discussions about genealogies. And I don't even fully understand maybe what the implication was. Maybe it was a way to show their, their, their prominence and that they were of higher status. Um, who knows? But we do know what the result was of not teaching sound doctrine and giving themselves over to fables and genealogies was that they were missing out on godly edification and it was resulting in fights. It says, which caused disputes rather than godly edification? The goal of sound doctrine is to edify, is to strengthen, is to build the church. And when that's not happening, there, there enters in these unnecessary disputes. Well, when is it a necessary dispute? When it's about the Word of God and somebody's willing to set it aside. So the exhortation is teach no other doctrine and tell them to stop doing these things. And we close here in verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. He didn't give him these commandments so that Timothy could go draw disciples unto himself. He didn't give him these commandments so that he could get more money. And that was often the motivation, and it's still often the motivation of those who teach false doctrine and try and gather disciples away. Um, they have impure motives. But Paul says, listen, my commandment to you for teaching the Word of God and for confronting these that aren't, it's, it's, from, it's is from love and a pure heart. It, I don't have ulterior motives. I've got a good conscience. It's from sincere faith. I am not, he wasn't self-seeking. Um, he was seeking the benefit of the body of Christ. Now, I, we read in Acts chapter 20, there in verse 30, it says, Also from among yourselves men will, arise, will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Those are the impure motives. 
These men that Paul warned them about that evidently have now showed up in Ephesus, these are men that wanted attention. They wanted recognition. Maybe they were trying to get money. Who knows what all of the reasons were. They wanted people to follow them rather than following Jesus. And so Paul says, that's my commandments. They come from a, a right heart, a good heart. And this should be the goal of every pastor, and this should be the desire of every Christian. Now, this applies to pastor. You're probably thinking, well, come on, this is a letter for you to go read. Now, do, you, do I need to study this letter? Well, yeah, and here's, here's two reasons why. Number one, you need to know what you should expect from the leadership of a church as stated from the Word of God. Amen. You need to know. Secondly, there's an application to your life. Now, the interpretation is the leaders of churches should not allow false doctrine to be taught. That's the interpretation. The application is this. You have an influence over people's lives, too. And maybe it's your children. Maybe it's that, you know, you're the dad of the home or maybe your mom that's leading the household, your friends. You have, an in, you have a sphere of influence of people. And, and I would say to you, don't allow them to teach any other doctrine. Stand there and call them to, to cling to the Word of God and to the truth of the Word of God. But here's the reality. When we choose to walk down this path, you can bet you're going to have a lot of conflict. And people might start getting mad at you. Well, that's your opinion. No, no, no. It's not my opinion. This is the Word of God. Well, don't judge me. Well, I'm sorry. I must judge you. Because what you're saying is not true. It doesn't line up with the word of, what the Word of God has to say. You're twisting this. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.16 of the Apostle Paul's letters. He says, speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. That's why we speak up. That's the commandment it comes from love. Is I don't want to see the, the, the one twisting Scripture to be destroyed, nor do I want those who are influenced by the twisting of Scripture to be destroyed. So I've got to speak up. But here's why we often don't want to speak up. And, you know, pastors sometimes don't want to speak up because they're afraid of losing people. They're like, ah, I don't want to do that. If I say that, they're going to leave. Um, and so they're, un, they're unwilling to, to carry out this commandment. They're, you know, they fear man more than they fear God. And that's, that's, a, that's a wrong thing. I will stand and I will give an account for your souls. Hebrews tells me this. Your soul. I've got to give an account for it. And so I'm, I need to do it. And listen, I know no better way to give an account for your soul than to be able to say to Jesus, I prayed for them and I gave them the word of God. And and, you know, I was there when they needed, as best as I could. But this is, i got to give an account. But, you know, I think we all are going to give an account for those people that were around our life. And so maybe, yeah, you're going to have a conversation with one of your children or with a parent, an aunt or an uncle. And when you do, that family meal is going to go down the tubes. It's going to erupt in arguments, and they're not going to be happy. And, and now you're challenged with this. And maybe you don't have to do it at the family meal, okay? But you get my point. It's just like, well, wait a minute. I don't want to do that because I just don't want, I, I love them too much. I don't want the relationship to change. Now, that's selfish. You care about a relationship more than you care about 
them being destroyed by a course of action that they're taking that is clearly wrong. I'm not talking about doubtful things. I'm not talking about what version of the Bible they need to read or whether they need to wear a suit or tie or what, how long their hair should be. Have long hair, have no hair, I don't care. It doesn't matter. And we're not talking about things like that. We're talking about, well, I, I just think I can you know, live in sin. I think I can have this you know, adulterous relationship. I think I can live a homosexual lifestyle. I think I can steal this stuff. I think I can walk in deception and lying. We've got to confront them. And we got in doctrine, you know, bad doctrine that's leading them astray. It's not easy. It's not fun. I've never confronted somebody and thought, wow, that was a great time. I've never woke up in the morning and said, you know what? I hope I have a confrontation. Lord, just give me a confrontation today. No, I've never once prayed that. And if you have, you need counseling, okay? So <laughs> nobody should be looking for these things. But we must be faithful. Yes, it's for the leadership. That's the interpretation. But there's an application for all of us in our relationships to charge people to speak no other thing than sound doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We have it. It's on our laps. It's in our apps. Or <laughs> we can study it anywhere, anytime. And we thank you for it. The inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word. What you think we know. As it pertains to life, salvation, and godliness, we know exactly what you think. Help us to be faithful followers, to be discerning, to test all things that we hear and only hold to that which is true. And Lord, I also pray, as we open, talking about how Paul was under that royal command that if we are chafing under your leadership and your authority in our life and the things you've been calling us to do. God, I just pray you would touch our hearts afresh. That we'd be reminded of your great love for us. And that we would yield to you.